Chapter nine of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter nine. Rural ride of a hundred and four miles from Kensington to Uphusband, including a rustic harangue at Winchester, at a dinner with the farmers on the twenty eighth September. Chilworth near Guildford, Surrey, Wednesday, twenty fifth September, eighteen twenty two. This morning I set off in rather drizzling rain from Kensington on horseback, accompanied by my son, with an intention of going to Uphusband near Andover, which is situated in the northwest corner of Hampshire. It is very true that I could have gone to Uphusband by travelling only about sixty six miles and in the space of about eight hours. But my object was not to see inns and turnpike roads, but to see the country to see the farmers at home, and to see the labourers in the fields. And to do this, you must go either on foot or on horseback. With a gig, you cannot get about amongst by-lanes and across fields, through bridle-ways and hunting-gates, and to tramp it is too slow, leaving the labour out of the question, and that is not a trifle. We went through the turnpike-gate at Kensington, and immediately turned down the lane to our left, proceeded on to Fulham, crossed Putney Bridge into Surrey, went over Barnes Common, and then, going on the upper side of Richmond, got again into Middlesex by crossing Richmond Bridge. All Middlesex is ugly, notwithstanding the millions upon millions which it is continually sucking up from the rest of the kingdom. And though the Thames and its meadows now and then are seen from the road, the country is not less ugly from Richmond to Chertsey Bridge, through Twickenham, Hampton, Sunbury, and Shepperton, than it is elsewhere. The soil is a gravel at bottom with a black loam at top near the Thames. Further back it is a sort of spewy gravel and the buildings consist generally of tax-eaters, showy, tea-garden-like boxes, and of shabby dwellings of labouring people who, in this part of the country, look to be about half St. Giles, dirty, and have every appearance of drinking gin. At Chertsey, where we came into Surrey again, there was a fair for horses, cattle, and pigs. I did not see any sheep. Everything was exceedingly dull. Cart-colts, two and three years old, were selling for less than a third of what they sold for in 1813, the cattle were of an inferior description, to be sure, but the price was low almost beyond belief. Cows which would have sold for fifteen pounds in 1813 did not get buyers at three pounds. I had no time to inquire much about the pigs, but a man told me that they were dirt cheap. Near Chertsey is St. Anne's Hill and some other pretty spots. Upon being shown this hill I was put in mind of Mr. Fox, and that brought into my head a grant that he obtained of Crown Lands in this neighbourhood in, I think, 1806. The Duke of York obtained by Act of Parliament a much larger grant of these lands at Oatlands in 1804, I think it was. But this was natural enough. This is what would surprise nobody. Mr. Fox's was another affair, and especially when taken into view with what I am now going to relate. In 1804 or 1805, Fordyce, the late Duchess of Gordon's brother, was collector-general, or had been, of taxes in Scotland, and owed a large arrear to the public. He was also surveyor of Crown Lands. The then opposition were for hauling him up, Pitt was again in power. Mr. Creevey was to bring forward the motion in the House of Commons, and Mr. Fox was to support it, and had actually spoken once or twice in a preliminary way on the subject. Notice of the motion was regularly given, it was put off from time to time, and at last dropped, Mr. Fox declining to support it. I have no books at hand, but the affair will be found recorded in the register. It was not owing to Mr. Creevey that the thing did not come on. I remember well that it was owing to Mr. Fox. Other motives were stated, and those others might be the real motives. But, at any rate, the next year, or the year after, Mr. Fox got transferred to him a part of that estate, which belongs to the public, and which was once so great, called the Crown Lands. And of these lands Fordyce long had been, and then was, the surveyor. Such are the facts. Let the reader reason upon them, and draw the conclusion. This county of Surrey presents to the eye of the traveller a greater contrast than any other county in England. It has some of the very best and some of the worst lands, not only in England, but in the world. We were here upon those of the latter description. For five miles on the road towards Guildford, the land is a rascally common covered with poor heath, except where the gravel is so near the top as not to suffer even the heath to grow. Here we entered the enclosed lands, which have the gravel at bottom, but a nice light black mould at top, in which the trees grow very well. Through by-lanes and bridle-ways, we came out into the London road, between Ripley and Guildford, and immediately crossing that road, came on towards a village called Merrow. We came out into the road just mentioned, at the lodge-gates of a Mr. Weston, whose mansion and estate have just passed, as to occupancy, into the hands of some new man. At Merrow, where we came into the Epsom Road, 
we found that mr webb weston whose mansion and park are a little further on towards london had just walked out and left it in possession of another new man this gentleman told us last year at the epsom meeting that he was losing his income and i told him how it was that he was losing it he is said to be a very worthy man very much respected a very good landlord but i dare say he is one of those who approved of yeomanry cavalry to keep down the jacobins and levellers but who in fact as i always told men of this description have put down themselves and their landlords for without them this thing never could have been done to ascribe the whole to contrivance would be to give to pitt and his followers too much credit for profundity but if the knaves who assembled at the crown and anchor in the strand in seventeen ninety three to put down by the means of prosecutions and spies those whom they called republicans and levellers if these knaves had said let us go to work to induce the owners and occupiers of the land to convey their estates and their capital into our hands and if the government had corresponded with them in views the effect could not have been more complete than it has thus far been the yeomanry actually as to the effect drew their swords to keep the reformers at bay while the tax-eaters were taking away the estates and the capital it was the sheep surrendering up the dogs into the hands of the wolves lord onslow lives near merrow this is the man that was for many years so famous as a driver of four in hand he used to be called tommy onslow he has the character of being a very good landlord i know he called me a damned jacobin several years ago only i presume because i was labouring to preserve to him the means of still driving four in hand while he and others like him and their yeomanry cavalry were working as hard to defeat my wishes and endeavours they say here that some little time back his lordship who has at any rate had the courage to retrench in all sorts of ways was at guildford in a gig with one horse at the very moment when spicer the stockbroker who was a chairman of the committee for prosecuting lord cochrane and who lives at esher came rattling in with four horses and a couple of outriders they relate an observation made by his lordship which may or may not be true and which therefore i shall not repeat but my lord there is another sort of courage courage other than that of retrenching that would become you in the present emergency i mean political courage and especially the courage of acknowledging your errors confessing that you were wrong when you called the reformers jacobins and levellers the courage of now joining them in their efforts to save their country to regain their freedom and to preserve to you your estate which is to be preserved you will observe by no other means than that of a reform of the parliament it is now manifest even to fools that it has been by the instrumentality of a base and fraudulent paper money that loan jobbers stock jobbers and jews have got the estates into their hands with what eagerness in seventeen ninety seven did the nobility gentry and clergy rush forward to give their sanction and their support to the system which then began and which has finally produced what we now behold they assembled in all the counties and put forth declarations that they would take the paper of the bank and that they would support the system upon this occasion the county of surrey was the very first county and on the list of signatures the very first name was onslow there may be sales and conveyances there may be recoveries deeds and other parchments but this was the real transfer this was the real signing away of the estates to come to chilworth which lies on the south side of st martha's hill most people would have gone along the level road to guildford and come round through shawford under the hills but we having seen enough of streets and turnpikes took a cross over marrow down where the guildford racecourse is and then mounted the surrey hills so famous for the prospects they afford here we look back over middlesex and into buckinghamshire and berkshire away towards the north-west into essex and kent towards the east over part of sussex to the south and over part of hampshire to the west and south-west we are here upon a bed of chalk where the downs always afford good sheep food we steered for st martha's chapel and went round at the foot of the lofty hill on which it stands this brought us down the side of a steep hill and along a bridle-way into the narrow and exquisitely beautiful vale of chilworth where we were to stop for the night this vale is skirted partly by woodlands and partly by sides of hills tilled as cornfields the land is excellent particularly towards the bottom even the arable fields are in some places towards their tops nearly as steep as the roof of a tiled house and where the ground is covered with woods the ground is still more steep down the middle of the vale there is a series of ponds or small lakes which meet your eye here and there through the trees here are some very fine farms a little strip of meadows some hop gardens and the lakes have given rise to the establishment of powder mills and paper mills the trees of all sorts grow well here and coppices yield poles for the hop gardens and wood to make charcoal for the powder mills they are sowing wheat here and the land owing to the fine summer that we have had is in a very fine state the rain too which yesterday fell here in great abundance has been just in time to make a really good wheat sowing season the turnips all the way that we have come are good rather backward in some places but in sufficient quantity upon the ground 
and there is yet a good while for them to grow. All the fall fruit is excellent, and in great abundance. The grapes are as good as those raised under glass. The apples are much richer than in ordinary years. The crop of hops has been very fine here, as well as everywhere else. The crop not only large, but good in quality. They expect to get six pounds a hundred for them at Wayhill Fair. That is one more than I think they will get. The best Sussex hops were selling in the borough of Southwark at three pounds a hundred a few days before I left London. The Farnham hops may bring double that price, but that, I think, is as much as they will, and this is ruin to the hop planter. The tax, with its attendant inconveniences, amounts to a pound a hundred, the picking, drying, and bagging to fifty shillings, the carrying to market not less than five shillings. Here is the sum of three pounds ten shillings of the money. Supposing the crop to be half a ton to the acre, the bare tillage will be ten shillings. The poles for an acre cannot cost less than two pounds a year, that is another four shillings to each hundred of hops. This brings the outgoings to eighty-two shillings. Then comes the manure, then come the poor rates, and road rates, and county rates, and if these leave one single farthing for rent, I think it is strange. I hear that Mr. Birkbeck is expected home from America. It is said that he is coming to receive a large legacy, a thing not to be overlooked by a person who lives in a country where he can have land for nothing. The truth is, I believe, that there has lately died a gentleman who has bequeathed a part of his property to pay the creditors of a relation of his, who some years ago became a bankrupt, and one of whose creditors Mr. Birkbeck was. What the amount may be I know not, but I have heard that the bankrupt had a partner at the time of the bankruptcy, so that there must be a good deal of difficulty in settling the matter in an equitable manner. The Chancery would draw it out, supposing the present system to continue, till, in all human probability, there would not be as much left for Mr. Birkbeck as would be required to pay his way back again to the land of promise. I hope he is coming here to remain here. He is a very clever man, though he has been very abusive and very unjust with regard to me. Lee, near Godalming, Surrey, Thursday, 26 September. We started from Chilworth this morning, came down the vale, left the village of Shawford to our right, and that of Wonesh to our left, and crossing the river Way, got into the turnpike road between Guildford and Godalming, went on through Godalming, and got to Lee, which lies to the north-east, snugly under Hindhead, about eleven o'clock. This was coming only about eight miles, a sort of rest after the thirty-two miles of the day before. Coming along the road, a farmer overtook us, and as he had known me from seeing me at the meeting at Epsom last year, I had a part of my main business to perform, namely to talk politics. He was going to hazel me a fare, upon the mention of that sinkhole of a borough, which sends, as clearly as the sun at noonday, the celebrated Charles Long, and the scarcely less celebrated Robert Ward, to the celebrated House of Commons, we began to talk, as it were, spontaneously, about Lord Lonsdale and the Lowthers. The farmer wondered why the Lowthers, that were the owners of so many farms, should be for a system which was so manifestly taking away the estates of the landlords and the capital of the farmers, and giving them to Jews, loan-jobbers, stock-jobbers, placemen, pensioners, sinecure-people, and people of the dead weight. But his wonder ceased, his eyes were opened, and his heart seemed to burn within him as I talked to him on the way, when I explained to him the nature of crown lands and crown tenants, and when I described to him certain districts of property in Westmoreland and other parts. I had not the book in my pocket, but my memory furnished me with quite a sufficiency of matter to make him perceive that, in supporting the present system, the Lowthers were by no means so foolish as he appeared to think them. From the Lowthers I turned to Mr. Points, who lives at Midhurst in Sussex, and whose name as a crown tenant I find in a report lately laid before the House of Commons, and the particulars of which I will state another time, for the information of the people of Sussex. I used to wonder myself what made Mr. Points call me a Jacobin. I used to think that Mr. Points must be a fool to support the present system. What I have seen in that report convinces me that Mr. Points is no fool, as far as relates to his own interest, at any rate. There is a mine of wealth in these crown lands. Here are farms and manors and mines and woods, and forests and houses and streets, incalculable in value. What can be so proper as to apply this public property towards the discharge of a part at least of that public debt which is hanging round the neck of this nation like a millstone? Mr. Ricardo proposes to seize upon a part of the private property of every man to be given to the stock-jobbing race. At an act of injustice like this the mind revolts. The foolishness of it besides is calculated to shock one. But in the public property we see the suitable thing, and who can possibly object to this except those who, amongst them, now divide the possession or benefit of this property? I have once before mentioned, but I will repeat it, that Marlborough House in Pall Mall, for which the Prince of Saxe-Coburg pays a rent to the Duke of Marlborough of three thousand pounds a year, is rented of this generous public by that most noble Duke, 
at the rate of less than forty pounds a year. There are three houses in Pall Mall, the whole of which pay a rent to the public of about fifteen pounds a year, I think it is. I myself, twenty-two years ago, paid three hundred pounds a year for one of them, to a man that I thought was the owner of them, but I now find that these houses belong to the public. The Duke of Buckingham's house, in Pall Mall, which is one of the grandest in all London, and which is not worth less than seven or eight hundred pounds a year, belongs to the public. The Duke is the tenant, and I think he pays for it much less than twenty pounds a year. I speak from memory here all the way along, and therefore not positively. I will, another time, state the particulars from the books. The book that I am now referring to is also of a date of some years back, but I will mention all the particulars another time. Talk of reducing rents, indeed! Talk of generous landlords! It is the public that is the generous landlord. It is the public that lets its houses and manors and mines and farms at a cheap rate. It certainly would not be so good a landlord if it had a reformed parliament to manage its affairs, nor would it suffer so many snug corporations to carry on their snugglings in the manner that they do, and therefore it is obviously the interest of the rich tenants of this poor public, as well as the interest of the snugglers in corporations, to prevent the poor public from having such a parliament. We got into free quarter again at Lee, and there is nothing like free quarter, as soldiers well know. Lee is situated on the edge of that immense heath, which sweeps down from the summit of Hindhead, across to the north, over innumerable hills of minor altitude, and of an infinite variety of shapes towards Farnham, to the north-east, towards the Hog's Back, leading from Farnham to Guildford, and to the east, or nearly so, towards Godalming. Nevertheless, the enclosed lands at Lee are very good, and singularly beautiful. The timber of all sorts grows well, the land is light, and being free from stones, very pleasant to work. If you go southward from Lee about a mile, you get down into what is called, in the old Acts of Parliament, the Weald of Surrey. Here the land is a stiff, tenacious loam at top, with blue and yellow clay beneath. This Weald continues on eastward, and gets into Sussex near East Grinstead. Thence it winds about under the hills into Kent. Here the oak grows finer than in any part of England. The trees are more spiral in their form. They grow much faster than upon any other land. Yet the timber must be better for in some of the acts of Queen Elizabeth's reign it is provided that the oak for the Royal Navy shall come out of the wheels of Surrey, Sussex, or Kent. Odium, Hampshire, Friday, 27th September. From Lee we set off this morning about six o'clock to get free quarter again at a worthy old friend's at this nice little plain market-town. Our direct road was right over the heath through Tilford to Farnham, but we veered a little to the left after we came to Tilford, at which place on the green we stopped to look at an oak-tree, which, when I was a little boy, was but a very little tree, comparatively, and which is now, take it altogether, by far the finest tree that I ever saw in my life. The stem or shaft is short, that is to say it is short before you come to the first limbs, but it is full thirty feet round, at about eight or ten feet from the ground. Out of the stem there come not less than fifteen or sixteen limbs, many of which are from five to ten feet round, and each of which would, in fact, be considered a decent stick of timber. I am not judge enough of timber to say anything about the quantity in the whole tree, but my son stepped the ground, and as nearly as we could judge, the diameter of the extent of the branches was upwards of ninety feet, which would make a circumference of about three hundred feet. The tree is in full growth at this moment. There is a little hole in one of the limbs, but with that exception there appears not the smallest sign of decay. The tree has made great shoots in all parts of it this last summer and spring, and there are no appearances of white upon the trunk, such as are regarded as the symptoms of full growth. There are many sorts of oak in England, two very distinct, one with a pale leaf, and one with a dark leaf. This is of the pale leaf. The tree stands upon Tilford Green, the soil of which is a light loam with a hard sandstone a good way beneath, and probably clay beneath that. The spot where the tree stands is about a hundred and twenty feet from the edge of a little river, and the ground on which it stands may be about ten feet higher than the bed of that river. In quitting Tilford we came on to the land belonging to Waverley Abbey, and then, instead of going on to the town of Farnham, veered away to the left towards Recklesham, in order to cross the Farnham and Alton Turnpike Road, and to come on by the side of Cronwell to Odiham. We went a little out of the way to go to a place called the Burn, which lies in the heath at about a mile from Farnham. It is a winding narrow valley down which, during the wet season of the year, there runs a stream beginning at the Holt Forest, and emptying itself into the way just below Moor Park, which was the seat of Sir William Temple, when Swift was residing with him. We went to this bourne in order that I might show my son the spot where I received the rudiments of my education. 
there is a little hop-garden in which i used to work when from eight to ten years old from which i have scores of times run to follow the hounds leaving the hoe to do the best that it could to destroy the weeds but the most interesting thing was a sand-hill which goes from a part of the heath down to the rivulet as a due mixture of pleasure with toil i with two brothers used occasionally to disport ourselves as the lawyers call it at this sand-hill our diversion was this we used to go to the top of the hill which was steeper than the roof of a house one used to draw his arms out of the sleeves of his smock-frock and lay himself down with his arms by his sides and then the others one at head and the other at feet sent him rolling down the hill like a barrel or a log of wood by the time he got to the bottom his hair eyes ears nose and mouth were all full of this loose sand then the others took their turn and at every roll there was a monstrous spell of laughter i had often told my sons of this while they were very little and i now took one of them to see the spot but that was not all this was the spot where i was receiving my education and this was the sort of education and i am perfectly satisfied that if i had not received such an education or something very much like it that if i had been brought up a milksop with a nursery maid everlastingly at my heels i should have been at this day as great a fool as inefficient a mortal as any of those frivolous idiots that are turned out from winchester and westminster schools or from any of those dens of dunces called colleges and universities it is impossible to say how much i owe to that sand-hill and i went to return it my thanks for the ability which it probably gave me to be one of the greatest terrors to one of the greatest and most powerful bodies of knaves and fools that ever were permitted to afflict this or any other country from the bourne we proceeded on to recklesham at the end of which we crossed what is called the river way here we found a parcel of labourers at parish work amongst them was an old playmate of mine the account they gave of their situation was very dismal the harvest was over early the hop-picking is now over and now they are employed by the parish that is to say not absolutely digging holes one day and filling them up the next but at the expense of half-ruined farmers and tradesmen and landlords to break stones into very small pieces to make nice smooth roads lest the jolting in going along them should create bile in the stomachs of the overfed tax-eaters i call upon mankind to witness this scene and to say whether ever the like of this was heard of before it is a state of things where all is out of order where self-preservation that great law of nature seems to be set at defiance for here are farmers unable to pay men for working for them and yet compelled to pay them for working in doing that which is really of no use to any human being there lie the hop-poles unstripped you see a hundred things in the neighbouring fields that want doing the fences are not nearly what they ought to be the very meadows to our right and our left in crossing this little valley would occupy these men advantageously until the setting in of the frost and here are they not as i said before actually digging holes one day and filling them up the next but to all intents and purposes as uselessly employed is this mr canning's son of prosperity is this the way to increase or preserve a nation's wealth is this a sign of wise legislation and of good government does this thing work well mr canning does it prove that we want no change true you were born under a kingly government and so was i as well as you but i was not born under six acts nor was i born under a state of things like this i was not born under it and i do not wish to live under it and with god's help i will change it if i can we left these poor fellows after having given them not religious tracts which would if they could make the labourer content with half starvation but something to get them some bread and cheese and beer being firmly convinced that it is the body that wants filling and not the mind however in speaking of their low wages i told them that the farmers and hop-planters were as much objects of compassion as themselves which they acknowledged we immediately after this crossed the road and went on towards crondall upon a soil that soon became stiff loam and flint at top with a bit of chalk beneath we did not go to crondall but kept along over slade heath and through a very pretty place called well we arrived at odium about half after eleven at the end of a beautiful ride of about seventeen miles in a very fine and pleasant day winchester saturday twenty eighth september just after daylight we started for this place by the turnpike we could have come through basingstoke by turning off to the right or through alton and alresford by turning off to the left being naturally disposed towards a middle course we chose to wind down through upton grey preston candover chilton candover brown candover then down to ovington and into winchester by the north entrance from recklesham to winchester we have come over roads and lanes of flint and chalk the weather being dry again the ground under you as solid as iron makes a great rattling with the horse's feet 
the country where the soil is stiff loam upon chalk is never bad for corn not rich but never poor there is at no time anything deserving to be called dirt in the roads the buildings last a long time from the absence of fogs and also the absence of humidity in the ground the absence of dirt makes the people habitually cleanly and all along through this country the people appear in general to be very neat it is a country for sheep which are always sound and good upon this iron soil the trees grow well where there are trees the woods and coppices are not numerous but they are good particularly the ash which always grows well upon the chalk the oaks though they do not grow in the spiral form as upon the clays are by no means stunted and some of them very fine trees i take it that they require a much greater number of years to bring them to perfection than in the wheels the wood perhaps may be harder but i have heard that the oak which grows upon these hard bottoms is very frequently what the carpenters call shaky the underwoods here consist almost entirely of hazel which is very fine and much tougher and more durable than that which grows on soils with a moist bottom this hazel is a thing of great utility here it furnishes rods wherewith to make fences but its principal use is to make wattles for the folding of sheep in the fields these things are made much more neatly here than in the south of hampshire and in sussex or in any other part that i have seen chalk is the favourite soil of the yew tree and at preston candover there is an avenue of yew trees probably a mile long each tree containing as nearly as i can guess from twelve to twenty feet of timber which as the reader knows implies a tree of considerable size they have probably been a century or two in growing but in any way that timber can be used the timber of the yew will last perhaps ten times as long as the timber of any other tree that we grow in england quitting the candovers we came along between the two estates of the two barings sir thomas who has supplanted the duke of bedford was to our right while alexander who has supplanted lord northington was on our left the latter has enclosed as a sort of outwork to his park a pretty little down called northington down in which he has planted here and there a clump of trees but mr baring not reflecting that woods are not like funds to be made at a heat has planted his trees too large so that they are covered with moss are dying at the top and are literally growing downward instead of upward in short this enclosure and plantation have totally destroyed the beauty of this part of the estate the down which was before very beautiful and formed a sort of glacis up to the park pales is now a marred ragged ugly-looking thing the dying trees which have been planted long enough for you not to perceive that they have been planted excite the idea of sterility in the soil they do injustice to it for as a down it was excellent everything that has been done here is to the injury of the estate and discovers a most shocking want of taste in the projector sir thomas's plantations or rather those of his father have been managed more judiciously i do not like to be a sort of spy in a man's neighbourhood but i will tell sir thomas baring what i have heard and if he be a man of sense i shall have his thanks rather than his reproaches for so doing i may have been misinformed but this is what i have heard that he and also lady baring are very charitable that they are very kind and compassionate to their poor neighbours but that they tack a sort of condition to this charity that they insist upon the objects of it adopting their notions with regard to religion or at least that where the people are not what they deem pious they are not objects of their benevolence i do not say that they are not perfectly sincere themselves and that their wishes are not the best that can possibly be but of this i am very certain that by pursuing this principle of action where they make one good man or woman they will make one hundred hypocrites it is not little books that can make a people good that can make them moral that can restrain them from committing crimes i believe that books of any sort never yet had that tendency sir thomas does i dare say think me a very wicked man since i aim at the destruction of the funding system and what he would call a robbery of what he calls the public creditor and yet god help me i have read books enough and amongst the rest a great part of the religious tracts amongst the labouring people the first thing you have to look after is common honesty speaking the truth and refraining from thieving and to secure these the labourers must have his belly full and be free from fear and this belly full must come to him from out of his wages and not from benevolence of any description such being my opinion i think sir thomas baring would do better that he would discover more real benevolence by using the influence which he must naturally have in his neighbourhood to prevent a diminution in the wages of labour winchester sunday morning twenty ninth september yesterday was market-day here everything cheap and falling instead of rising if it were over-production last year that produced the distress when are our miseries to have an end they will end when these men cease to have sway and not before i had not been in winchester long 
before i heard something very interesting about the manifesto concerning the poor which was lately issued here and upon which i remarked in my last register but one in my letter to sir thomas baring proceeding upon the true military principle i looked out for free quarter which the reader will naturally think difficult for me to find in a town containing a cathedral having done this i went to the swan inn to dine with the farmers this is the manner that i like best of doing the thing six acts do not to be sure prevent us from dining together they do not authorize justices of the peace to kill us because we meet to dine without their permission but i do not like dinner meetings on my account i like much better to go and fall in with the lads of the land or with anybody else at their own places of resort and i am going to place myself down at uphusband in excellent free quarter in the midst of all the great fairs of the west in order before the winter campaign begins that i may see as many farmers as possible and that they may hear my opinions and i theirs i shall be at wayhill fair on the tenth of october and perhaps on some of the succeeding days and on one or more of those days i intend to dine at the white hart at andover what other fairs or places i shall go to i shall notify hereafter and this i think the frankest and fairest way i wish to see many people and to talk to them and there are a great many people who wish to see and to talk to me what better reason can be given for man's going about the country and dining at fairs and markets at the dinner at winchester we had a good number of opulent yeomen and many gentlemen joined us after the dinner the state of the country was well talked over and during the session much more sensible than some other sessions that i have had to remark on i made the following rustic harangue gentlemen though many here are i am sure glad to see me i am not vain enough to suppose that anything other than that of wishing to hear my opinions on the prospects before us can have induced many to choose to be here to dine with me to-day i shall before i sit down propose to you a toast which you will drink or not as you choose but i shall state one particular wish in that shape that it may be the more distinctly understood and the better remembered the wish to which i allude relates to the tithes under that word i mean to speak of all that mass of wealth which is vulgarly called church property but which is in fact public property i may of course be disposed of as the parliament shall please there appears at this moment an uncommon degree of anxiety on the part of the parsons to see the farmers enabled to pay rents the business of the parsons being only with tithes one naturally at first sight wonders why they should care so much about rents the fact is this they see clearly enough that the landlords will never long go without rents and suffer them to enjoy the tithes they see too that there must be a struggle between the land and the funds they see that there is such a struggle they see that it is the taxes that are taking away the rent of the landlord and the capital of the farmer yet the parsons are afraid to see the taxes reduced why because if the taxes be reduced in any great degree and nothing short of a great degree will give relief they see that the interest of the debt cannot be paid and they know well that the interest of the debt can never be reduced until their tithes have been reduced thus then they find themselves in a great difficulty they wish the taxes to be kept up and rents to be paid too both cannot be unless some means or other be found out of putting into or keeping in the farmer's pocket money that is not now there the scheme that appears to have been fallen upon for this purpose is the strangest in the world and it must if attempted to be put into execution produce something little short of open and general commotion namely that of reducing the wages of labour to a mark so low as to make the labourer a walking skeleton before i proceed further it is right that i communicate to you an explanation which not an hour ago i received from mr poulter relative to the manifesto lately issued in this town by a bench of magistrates of which that gentleman was chairman i have not the honour to be personally acquainted with mr poulter but certainly if i had misunderstood the manifesto it was right that i should be if possible made to understand it mr poulter in company with another gentleman came to me in this inn and said that the bench did not mean that their resolutions should have the effect of lowering the wages and that the sums stated in the paper were sums to be given in the way of relief we had not the paper before us and as the paper contained a good deal about relief i in recollection confounded the two and said that i had understood the paper agreeably to the explanation but upon looking at the paper again i see that as to the words there was a clear recommendation to make the wages what is there stated however seeing that the chairman himself disavows this we must conclude that the bench put forth words not expressing their meaning to this i must add as connected with the manifesto that it is stated in that document that such and such justices were present and a large and respectable number of yeomen who had been invited to attend now gentlemen i was i must confess struck with this addition to the bench 
these gentlemen have not been accustomed to treat farmers with so much attention it seemed odd that they should want a set of farmers to be present to give a sort of sanction to their acts since my arrival in winchester i have found however that having them present was not all for that the names of some of these yeomen were actually inserted in the manuscript of the manifesto and that those names were expunged at the request of the parties named this is a very singular proceeding then altogether it presents to us a strong picture of the diffidence or modesty call it which you please of the justices and it shows us that the yeomen present did not like to have their names standing as giving sanction to the resolutions contained in the manifesto indeed they knew well that those resolutions never could be acted upon they knew that they could not live in safety even in the same village with labourers paid at the rate of three four and five shillings a week to return now gentlemen to the scheme for squeezing rents out of the bones of the labourer is it not upon the face of it most monstrously absurd that this scheme should be resorted to when the plain and easy and just way of insuring rents must present itself to every eye and can be pursued by the parliament whenever it choose we heard loud outcries against the poor rates the enormous poor rates the all-devouring poor rates but what are the facts why that in great britain six millions are paid in poor rates seven millions or thereabouts in tithes and sixty millions to the fund people the army placemen and the rest and yet nothing of all this seems to be thought of but the six millions surely the other and so much larger sums might to be thought of even the six millions are for the far greater part wages and not poor rates and yet all this outcry is made about these six millions while not a word is said about the other sixty-seven millions gentlemen to enumerate all the ways in which the public money is spent would take me a week i will mention two classes of persons who are receivers of taxes and you will then see with what reason it is that this outcry is set up against the poor rates and against the amount of wages there is a thing called the dead weight incredible as it may seem that such a vulgar appellation should be used in such a way and by such persons it is a fact that the ministers have laid before the parliament an account called the account of the dead weight this account tells how five millions three hundred thousand pounds are distributed annually amongst half-pay officers pensioners retired commissaries clerks and so forth employed during the last war if there were nothing more entailed upon us by that war this is pretty smart money now unjust unnecessary as that war was detestable as it was in all its principles and objects still to every man who really did fight or who performed a soldier's duty abroad i would give something he should not be left destitute but gentlemen is it right for the nation to keep on paying for life crowds of young fellows such as make up the greater part of this dead weight this is not all however for there are the widows and the children who have and are to have pensions too you seem surprised and well you may but this is the fact a young fellow who has a pension for life ay or an old fellow either will easily get a wife to enjoy it with him and he will i'll warrant him take care that she shall not be old so that here is absolutely a premium for entering into the holy state of matrimony the husband you will perceive cannot prevent the wife from having the pension after his death she is our widow in this respect not his she marries in fact with a jointure settled on her the more children the husband leaves the better for the widow for each child has a pension for a certain number of years the man who under such circumstances does not marry must be a woman-hater an old man actually going into the grave may by the mere ceremony of marriage give any woman a pension for life even the widows and children of insane officers are not excluded if an officer now insane but at large were to marry there is nothing as the thing now stands to prevent his widow and children from having pensions were such things as these ever before heard of in the world were such premiums ever before given for breeding gentlemen and ladies and that too while all sorts of projects are on foot to check the breeding of the labouring classes can such a thing go on i say it cannot and if it could it must inevitably render this country the most contemptible upon the face of the earth and yet not a word of complaint is heard about these five millions and a quarter expended in this way while the country rings fairly resounds with the outcry about the six millions that are given to the labourers in the shape of poor rates but which in fact go for the greater part to pay what ought to be called wages unless then we speak out here unless we call for redress here unless we here seek relief we shall not only be totally ruined but we shall deserve it the other class of persons to whom i have alluded as having taxes bestowed on them are the poor clergy not of the church as by law established to be sure you will say yes gentlemen even to the poor clergy of the established church we know well how rich that church is we know well how many millions it annually receives we know how opulent are the bishops how rich they die 
how rich in short her body it is and yet fifteen hundred thousand pounds have within the same number of years been given out of the taxes partly raised on the labourers for the relief of the poor clergy of that church while it is notorious that the livings are given in numerous cases by twos and threes to the same person and while a clamour enough to make the sky ring is made about what is given in the shape of relief to the labouring classes why gentlemen what do we want more than this one fact does not this one fact sufficiently characterise the system under which we live does not this prove that a change a great change is wanted would it not be more natural to propose to get this money back from the church than to squeeze so much out of the bones of the labourers this the parliament can do if it pleases and this it will do if you do your duty passing over several other topics let me gentlemen now come to what at the present moment most nearly affects you namely the prospect as to prices in the first place this depends upon whether peel's bill will be repealed as this depends a good deal upon the ministers and as i am convinced that they know no more what to do in the present emergency than the little boys and girls that are running up and down the street before this house it is impossible for me or for any one to say what will be done in this respect but my opinion is decided that the bill will not be repealed the ministers see that if they were now to go back to the paper it would not be the paper of eighteen nineteen but a paper never to be redeemed by gold that it would be assignats to all intents and purposes that must of necessity cause the complete overthrow of the government in a very short time if therefore the ministers see the thing in this light it is impossible that they should think of a repeal of peel's bill there appeared last winter a strong disposition to repeal the bill and i verily believe that a repeal in effect though not in name was actually in contemplation a bill was brought in which was described beforehand as intended to prolong the issue of small notes and also to prolong the time for making bank of england notes a legal tender this would have been a repealing of peel's bill in great part the bill when brought in and when passed as it finally was contained no clause relative to legal tender and without that clause it was perfectly nugatory let me explain to you gentlemen what this bill really is in the seventeenth year of the late king's reign an act was passed for a time limited to prevent the issue of notes payable to bearer on demand for any sums less than five pounds in the twenty-seventh year of the late king's reign this act was made perpetual and the preamble of the act sets forth that it is made perpetual because the preventing of small notes being made has been proved to be for the good of the nation nevertheless in just ten years afterwards that is to say in the year one thousand seven hundred and ninety seven when the bank stopped payment this salutary act was suspended indeed it was absolutely necessary for there was no gold to pay with it continued suspended until eighteen nineteen when mr peel's bill was passed when a bill was passed to suspend it still further until the year eighteen twenty five you will observe then that last winter there were yet three years to come during which the banks might make small notes if they would yet this new bill was passed last winter to authorise them to make small notes until the year eighteen thirty three the measure was wholly uncalled for it appeared to be altogether unnecessary but as i have just said the intention was to introduce into this bill a clause to continue the legal tender until eighteen thirty three and that would indeed have made a great alteration in the state of things and if extended to the bank of england would have been in effect a complete repeal of peel's bill it was fully expected by the country bankers that the legal tender clause would have been inserted but before it came to the trial the ministers gave way and the clause was not inserted the reason for their giving way i do verily believe had its principal foundation in their perceiving that the public would clearly see that such a measure would make the paper money merely assignats the legal tender not having been enacted the small note bill can do nothing towards augmenting the quantity of circulating medium as the law now stands bank of england notes are in effect a legal tender if i owe a debt of twenty pounds and tender bank of england notes in payment the law says that you shall not arrest me that you may bring your action if you like that i may pay the notes into court that you may go on with your action that you shall pay all the costs and i none at last you gain your action you obtain judgment and execution or whatever else the everlasting law allows of and what have you got then why the notes the same identical notes the sheriff will bring you you will not take them go to law with the sheriff then he pays the notes into court more cost for you to pay and thus you go on but without ever touching or seeing gold now gentlemen peel's bill puts an end to all this pretty work on the first day of next may if you have a handful of a country banker's rags now and go to him for payment he will tender you bank of england notes and if you like the paying of costs you may go to law for gold 
but when the first of next may comes he must put gold into your hands in exchange for your notes if you choose it or you may clap a bailiff's hand upon his shoulder and if he choose to pay into court he must pay in gold and pay your costs also as far as you have gone this makes a strange alteration in the thing and everybody must see that the bank of england and the country bankers that all in short are preparing for the first of may it is clear that there must be a further diminution of the paper money it is hard to say the precise degree of effect that this will have upon prices but that it must bring them down is clear and for my own part i am fully persuaded that they will come down to the standard of prices in france be those prices what they may this indeed was acknowledged by mr huskisson in the agricultural report of eighteen twenty one that two countries so near together both having gold as a currency or standard should differ very widely from each other in the prices of farm produce is next to impossible and therefore when our legal tender shall be completely done away to the prices of france you must come and those prices cannot i think in the present state of europe much exceed three or four shillings a bushel for good wheat you know as well as i do that it is impossible with the present taxes and rates and tithes to pay any rent at all with prices upon that scale let loan jobbers stock jobbers jews and the whole tribe of tax-eaters say what they will you know that it is impossible as you also know it would be cruelly unjust to wring from the labourer the means of paying rent while those taxes and tithes remain something must be taken off the labourer's wages have already been reduced as low as possible all public pay and salaries ought to be reduced and the tithes also ought to be reduced as they might be to a great amount without any injury to religion the interest of the debt ought to be largely reduced but as none of the others can with any show of justice take place without a reduction of the tithes and as i am for confining myself to one object at present i will give you as a toast leaving you to drink it or not as you please a large reduction of tithes somebody proposed to drink this toast with three times three which was accordingly done and the sound might have been heard down to the close upon some gentleman giving my health i took occasion to remind the company that the last time i was at winchester we had the memorable fight with lockhart the brave and his sable friends i reminded them that it was in that same room that i told them that it would not be long before mr lockhart and those sable gentlemen would become enlightened and i observed that if we were to judge from a man's language there was not a landowner in england that more keenly felt than mr lockhart the truth of those predictions which i had put forth at the castle on the day alluded to i reminded the company that i sailed for america in a few days after that meeting that they must be well aware that on the day of the meeting i knew that i was taking leave of the country but i observed that i had not been in the least depressed by that circumstance because i relied with perfect confidence on being in this same place again to enjoy as i now did a triumph over my adversaries after this mr hector gave a constitutional reform in the commons house of parliament which was drunk with great enthusiasm and mr hector's health having been given he in returning thanks urged his brother yeomen and freeholders to do their duty by coming forward in county meeting and giving their support to those noblemen and gentlemen that were willing to stand forward for a reform and for a reduction of taxation i held forth to them the example of the county of kent which had done itself so much honour by its conduct last spring what these gentlemen in hampshire will do it is not for me to say if nothing be done by them they will certainly be ruined and that ruin they will certainly deserve it was to the farmers that the government owed its strength to carry on the war having them with it in consequence of a false and bloated prosperity it cared not a straw for anybody else if they therefore now do their duty if they all like the yeomen and farmers of kent come boldly forward everything will be done necessary to preserve themselves and their country and if they do not come forward they will as men of property be swept from the face of the earth the noblemen and gentlemen who are in parliament and who are disposed to adopt measures of effectual relief cannot move with any hope of success unless backed by the yeomen and farmers and the middling classes throughout the country generally i do not mean to confine myself to yeomen and farmers but to take in all tradesmen and men of property with these at their back or rather at the back of these there are men enough in both houses of parliament to propose and to urge measures suitable to the exigency of the case but without the middling classes to take the lead those noblemen and gentlemen can do nothing even the ministers themselves if they were so disposed and they must be so disposed at last could make none of the reforms that are necessary without being actually urged on by the middle classes of the community this is a very important consideration a new man as minister might indeed propose the reforms himself but these men opposition as well as ministry are so pledged to the things that have brought all this ruin upon the country 
that they absolutely stand in need of an overpowering call from the people to justify them in doing that which they themselves may think just and which they may know to be necessary for the salvation of the country they dare not take the lead in the necessary reforms it is too much to be expected of any men upon the face of the earth pledged and situated as these ministers are and therefore unless the people will do their duty they will have themselves and only themselves to thank for their ruin and for that load of disgrace and for that insignificance worse than disgrace which seems after so many years of renown to be attaching themselves to the name of england uphusband sunday evening twenty ninth september eighteen twenty two we came along the turnpike road through Wirwell and andover and got to this place about two o'clock this country except at the village and town just mentioned is very open a thinnish soil upon a bed of chalk between winchester and Wirwell, we came by some hundreds of acres of ground that was formerly most beautiful down which was broken up in deer corn times and which is now a district of thistles and other weeds if i had such land as this i would soon make it down again i would for once that is to say if i had the money get it quite clean prepare it as for sowing turnips get the turnips if possible feed them off early or plough the ground if i got no turnips sow thick with st foin and meadow-grass seeds of all sorts early in september let the crop stand till the next july feed it then slenderly with sheep and dig up all thistles and rank weeds that might appear keep feeding it but not too close during the summer and the fall and keep on feeding it for ever after as a down the st foin itself would last for many years and as it disappeared its place would be supplied by the grass that sort which was most congenial to the soil would at last stifle all other sorts and the land would become a valuable down as formerly i see that some plantations of ash and of hazel have been made along here but with great submission to the planters i think they have gone the wrong way to work as to the mode of preparing the ground they have planted small trees and that is right they have trenched the ground and that is also right but they have brought the bottom soil to the top and that is wrong always and especially where the bottom soil is gravel or chalk or clay i know that some people will say that this is a puff and let it pass for that but if any gentleman that is going to plant trees will look into my book on gardening and into the chapter on preparing the soil he will i think see how conveniently ground may be trenched without bringing to the top that soil in which the young trees stand so long without making shoots this country though so open has its beauties the homesteads in the sheltered bottoms with fine lofty trees about the houses and yards form a beautiful contrast with the large open fields the little villagers running straggling along the dells always with lofty trees and rookeries are very interesting objects even in the winter you feel a sort of satisfaction when you are out upon the bleak hills yourself at the thought of the shelter which is experienced in the dwellings in the valleys andover is a neat and solid market-town it is supported entirely by the agriculture around it and how the makers of population returns ever came to think of classing the inhabitants of such a town as this under any other head than that of persons employed in agriculture would appear astonishing to any man who did not know those population return makers as well as i do the village of uphusband the legal name of which is hurstbourne tarrant is as the reader will recollect a great favourite with me not the less so certainly on account of the excellent free quarter that it affords End of chapter nine